How can we support our immune health despite toxicity in our environment, especially in the context of a global pandemic? How are systems of food production contributing to the destruction of ecosystems worldwide and giving rise to disease outbreaks like the one we've seen with COVID-19? We had the privilege to sit down with Zach Bush, MD, to ask these questions and get his insights on everything from the top anti-inflammatory foods to how the air you breathe affects your microbiome. Dr. Zach is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's an internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and our food production systems. But beyond his medical expertise, he shares with us a vision for how humanity can use the challenges we're facing collectively as an opportunity to transform our relationship with nature and life as we know it on Earth. This is an episode you may want to listen to more than once and share with your loved ones. Now, my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. We're in the middle of this global pandemic, and I want to kind of have your perspective on this because I know you've said that we can just expect more of this to come and worse. So in your view, what has been contributing to this? What are the causes? Yeah, so it's uh, definitely been portrayed as a new thing by the media and perhaps to get the clickbait and certainly by the politicians for some reason to maybe create some momentum behind the public you know, mo- movement and the economic shifts that have happened. All that remains unclear to me, but the science behind this is not new. This has been happening since the beginning of biology as we understand it. Uh, viruses, which are not living organisms, they're not like bacteria and fungi. Viruses are actually just packets of genetic information. And in the case of this one, it's an RNA virus. RNA is a, a template that is derived from DNA. But viruses are unique in that they can insert this RNA into our DNA and then can make a protein out of that. And so uh, the coronavirus that's being recognized with this pandemic right now, uh, again, the science is very incomplete. To say that we know that this coronavirus is causing these deaths, all we can say is that there's a correlation between detecting this strand of RNA in the bloodstream and uh, and the, the consequences that are happening to very few of the people that it's detected in. So the vast majority of people that we detect this RNA in uh, are asymptomatic, uh, and there's a very small segment that will become sick, and even a much smaller segment that will become fatally ill. It's certainly leading to the death of, of people around the planet, and on a population of 7 billion, we are very blessed and fortunate that the number has been as low as it has, but that doesn't diminish the human loss that we're seeing from this. My concern is that there there's a misperception of newness to this. And also there's a misperception that this is the same as other viruses. The clinical manifestation that's happening in the ICUs is much different than other viruses uh, that we see, such as influenza. So this virus is a uh, adaptation of a longstanding corona strain. Coronaviruses have been around for since the study of viruses really started. And it's one of the most common contributors to common cold and things like this. So coronaviruses are common. They happen on a yearly, if not multiple times a year basis to the human population. And so in that way, this is old news. What's new news is that there was a shift in the, in the amount of genetic information that was in that virus that happened perhaps in October, November of this year, past year in China. And the 
phenomenon of shift rather than drift is something very significant. Uh, shift is where we have a sudden upgrade of, of the RNA information in this virus where it can make new proteins and therefore be- behave differently clinically. And in this case, there's a new protein in, in this corona strain that we've never seen before, which I find fascinating. And so mm-hmm. the, the we have yet to identify what that is. Is it an enzyme? Is it you know something that would help detox our bodies? Is it something that would protect us from cancer? Is it something that makes us prone to disease in the future? We literally have no idea. But the way in which biology swaps the genetic information via the virus envelopes um, is always an adaptive process. And so as we stress the environment, viruses become very active in swapping genetic information in response to that stress. And so very predictably, as you look at the big stressors on the planet that we've forced on the microbiome, these packets of genetic information in response to those injuries have, have factored very well or correlated very well with these large ecologic injuries that we cause through the farming and agricultural industries. Worldwide, we've seen an annihilation of rainforests, uh, 97% of the grasslands. Like We have devastated the biodiversity of the planet in the name of agriculture to feed 7 billion people. Uh, of course, very, very little of that agricultural land actually goes to feed humans. In the United States, you know, Kansas is our most agricultural state. 90% of its acreage is under farmland, and yet they have to import 90% of their food. What are they importing? They're importing the food that they eat. They're exporting uh, the non-food that they're growing. So what they're, they're growing is actually corn and soybean and uh, the like that go into ethanol, go into uh, processed foods, go into uh, our, the apparel industry as polyesters and plastics and such. And so we are growing commodities, but we're not growing food. And so that's, that's important because we keep saying, well, we have to destroy the ecosystem plant to feed 7 billion people. And that's not at all the case. Feeding the people is mostly happening by peasant farmers growing real food. 70% of the world is fed by a peasant farmer today. Only 30% of the world is actually fed out of some sort of large Western agricultural system. And then those peasant farmers are going hungry too, right? Because they're selling their crops to us. Yeah, so those peasant farmers are, are losing industry because they're actually being trained into chemical agriculture. And chemical agriculture is now annihilating their soils, increasing their cost of necessary inputs. And so when you start spraying herbicides and pesticides, it sounds like an easy management decision because you no longer have weeds, you no longer have insects eating your plants, but within three, five, seven years, your crop you know, is diminishing in its yield. And so you have to start putting in intensive inputs. And so within a few years of, of the export of our agricultural practices of herbicides and pesticides, these peasant farmers are finding themselves bankrupt because they can't afford to buy from the chemical companies the expensive seeds and the expensive herbicides and pesticides now and, and nutrient inputs that that soil is now needing now that it's dead. And so we are definitely you know, straining the food system through chemical farming largely because we're not growing food and we're doing a practice that demands more and more expensive practices every year. Understood. So you're saying that this chemical agriculture and the resulting environmental degradation is actually a contributor to what we're seeing with the current pandemic? Yeah. So when you add, uh, this is seen at a hospital level and it's seen on the planetary level. So when we add antibiotics into a hospital environment, what results is drug-resistant bacteria. And so hospitals now are rampant with 
with bacteria that we call nosocomial infections or hospital-acquired infections because these bacteria have been bred in an environment of severe antimicrobial stress, and they, they, this very few species will develop the capacity to survive in that toxic environment. And so they become prone to overgrowing or causing infection when you, when you expose a vulnerable human microbiome to it. In the same way, if you start putting pressure antimicrobially on large swaths of the planet through the main herbicide we use is, is Roundup, and the active ingredient is glyphosate, which has been patented as an antibiotic, antiparasite, antifungal. This thing kills everything in the soil. And so when you start with that antimicrobial pressure, you're again going to cause these shifts in the, in the uh, attributes or survival mechanisms of the bacteria, and they're going to then secrete information at the genetic level into the the organisms that are eating that food. And so the poultry and the swine that then will lead to avian flu, if they're under that same stress and they're eating antibiotic-laced food that's already stress signaling out of it with genetic material, that animal now becomes stressed, it becomes divergent or uh, lacking diversity in its microbiome, it's now inducing a stress message, all of which can be exuded as genetic information. And so I am really, you know, pretty passionate about trying to change the dialogue around the viral kingdom into it's a genetic download, or in this case, upload into what's happening in the environment. If the environment is stressed, we're going to start producing these at a higher level. If that's true, then we should be able to correlate very closely the 1976 debut of Roundup into the global farming and these pandemics. And that's exactly what we see. The first swine flu that jumped between pigs and humans was 1976. And then within uh, three years of that, we had flu strains jumping from birds down to humans for the first time. So as we stressed these organisms, they started sending out signals, not within their own species, but cross species, sending out genetic information that we call viruses and that was, you know, starting to influence the biology of humans. So if it's just, you know, benign genetic information or something like that, why does it hurt people? Well, it's not necessarily benign. It's new genetic information that can either change the behavior of the immune system, whether it uh, upgrades it or downregulates it. And one thing that we can see these viruses do that can be very healthy for humans is induce fever and a big systemic inflammatory response. And what we know about viruses is the virus itself isn't what's causing all the symptoms of flu. What causes the symptoms of flu, or in this case, corona, is your immune system's response to that input. What we know about cancer is that hyperthermia, the the raising of the body temperature, is very effective at killing cancer cells, precancer cells, etc. And so it could be that This is an adaptive mechanism by nature to say when surrounded by toxins that are carcinogenic and a drop in the the microbiome protection against cancer, these genes are sent out with new proteins that can either detox us or maybe it's just an effort to increase the the immune system response to all of the organisms on the planet in this pro-cancerous environment. And so I really know that the microbiome is never against humanity. It's never at war with us. We have this massively mistaken paradigm right now that you see tearing across the whole world that we are in conflict with the virus. We are in conflict with the microbiome and and we need to mount war on this. And you see the word war mentioned all the time in the news today. You know, we're at war with this Corona thing. We're at war and 
I just watched another little segment from a doctor on the front line saying, you know, this is literally like being in the trenches of warfare. Like we're so exhausted. We're so tired. So we've got this mentality, like this thing is attacking us and we have to attack back with bigger antibiotics. We need to attack back with vaccines. We need to attack back with all this sterilization of the environment and hand sanitizer and all this. Obviously that stuff is not at the root cause of why this virus is happening. The root cause of why this virus is happening is because we continue to stress at higher and higher degrees the ecosystems of the center of China. I a year ago demonstrated at the at the Sun Valley Wellness Festival the pictures of China's glyphosate spraying map and dead soil systems to, and said if we're going to see another pandemic out of China and when we see it, it'll come out of this space. And it's Hubei province, right dead center of the heaviest spraying in the whole country of where we have the highest levels of toxicity, not just of Roundup and, and the, the other toxins that are from the agricultural system, but heavy metals, manufacturing toxins, all kinds of crap. So coming out of the very most toxic, most damaged ecosystem in China, we should expect these phenomenon to happen. And the world can say, oh, bad on China for being so toxic. We made them toxic. We exported our toxins to them. We told them to farm this way. We told them they could produce more. Then we exported all of our most toxic manufacturing practices to China because we could do it cheaper. You know, and, and then, we, then we made them buy all of our plastic from us because we weren't able to manage all the plastic waste. And so we've been shipping that to, to China. So we have been using China as a dumping ground. And that is not some problem of the, the Chinese government. The Chinese government has been trying to improve the economic wellness of one point. 3 billion people, and therefore they've made some tough economic decisions. But in January of 2018, they said, no more plastic. We are not taking the world's plastic anymore. We need to clean up China. Since then, they've made massive improvements in the air quality in Beijing. They've done all kinds of wonderful you know, interventions, realizing it. Uh, their recent uh, you know, agreement with Tesla, bringing Tesla in there as a manufacturer is a huge breakthrough, not only for you know, the clean air efforts there, but also just for trade agreements where China's starting to be able to do trade agreements with companies rather than a very stubborn U.S. government. And so I'm excited to see, you know, China clean itself up. And if it does, and if we can help them do it, the faster we help them do it, the fewer of these pandemics are going to come out of that space. But remember that MERS came out of the Middle East. It didn't come out of China. It came out of out of the Middle East and the damage done there probably by the oil and gas and chemical industries to that ecology. And so it's not specific to China. If we were doing better surveillance, we would realize that the Amazon jungle is producing all kinds of weird variants. And it's only by nature of the direction of jet streams and everything else that the U.S. isn't getting that. Uh, The jet stream taking the river of, of water out of uh, out of the Amazon there is not hitting the U.S. next. It's going west as, they, as it goes there. So um, so you've got this situation where we're not recognizing pandemics from that space, but certainly Asia is no doubt getting, you know, variations of viruses and other things as, uh, as the Amazon goes under stress. So it, it's happening all over the world. It is natural biology for genetic mutations and shift and drift to happen in the viral genomics as we stress the environment. So on a macro level, you're saying this is actually changing the genetics of the animals that we're raising for livestock, and that's how these viruses are then getting passed on to the human population based on our growing practices. When it comes to human susceptibility to 
coronavirus and other viruses like it, why are some people getting so sick and others not as affected? Such an important question, right? Humanity may now be making proteins from our genome going forward that we've never made before, which is so intriguing to me. We might get an upgrade in genetics here. In terms of the antibodies? No, in terms of the new genetic sequence that's been inserted into our our genome. From the virus? From the virus. We have too much chronic disease in this country, and we are stressing for decades now our hospital systems, and that's not new news. We are a hospital-building uh, nation because we have to go down and check out Ch- Texas Children's Hospital, which is, you know, towers and towers, the whole city built to house our sick and cancer uh, ridden children. We are building literal cities to house our sick people. This little extra stress on top of it that's happening right now. I'm not trying to say that the, the human loss is little. It's, it's enormous loss when you love, lose a loved one. It's enormously exhausting to work beyond your capacity as a physician or as a nurse or any care provider or respiratory therapist right now in these ICUs. Of course, it's exhausting because you don't have enough resources. You don't have enough staffing. You don't have enough because the the margin that has been squeezed out of the medical system to make more profit has been always pinching down on resources and always trying to maximize profit. That is a public company that is running your healthcare system. We run them like public companies. We have to extract as much you know, economy out of those things as possible. And so these public com- entities, these public businesses that are tasked with making money are always trying to cut. So why does our healthcare system get stressed so easily? Well, we have too much chronic disease. We run them on very narrow margins. We outsource to the cheapest manufacturer possible all the time. And so, yes, of course, China makes most of our masks because we want the cheapest possible masks to squeak out another one and a half cents of margin on every mask that we buy. And so this is the you know, disease that we have at, at the economic level, which is margins are shut, shut, shut down. And we're, lit, we're running on this small margin, which is insane when you know that every three or four years, there's going to be another pandemic that will stress the hospital system. People that are dying from this virus are not who you would expect if this was like the previous coronaviruses. And that's why the science is really starting to intrigue me around corona is because we know there's now an RNA strand that's coding for a protein that we don't know what it is. We have never seen this protein in human biotic before. So that's intriguing. So we have a new protein. And then we have a new clinical syndrome or a new clinical presentation that I also find fascinating, which is These patients are not dying of acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS, which is typically what happens with MERS, SARS, uh, influenza. When these viruses get bad and induce a pneumonia-like reaction or an inflammatory reaction in the lungs, we see whiteout on chest x-ray. Apparently, news coming out of New York right now is that that's not what this thing looks like. And I, I haven't seen this in person. This is another you know, ICU doctor in New York that put out this video to describe in detail what he's seeing at the ICU bed. He's like, I've literally in decades of acute care, never seen anything like this because it's not ARDS. They are not dying of a pneumonia. They're dying of hypoxemia, which is the inability to get oxygen off of hemoglobin. This is manifesting as if the person doesn't have the ability to deliver oxygen. You can get oxygen into their body which is much different than SARS or ARDS, you can get oxygen in there, but it can't deliver to tissue. So they're going hypoxemic due to an inability to release oxygen from their bloodstream. 
that's a very interesting phenomenon because we know in our laboratory after years of working around Roundup is that that is the injury of Roundup. Roundup actually induces a hypoxemic injury to all the tissues of the body. There's not a lack of oxygen. The oxygen just can't get into the tissue in the same way. And so in a bizarre way, whatever this virus is, it looks to be in a few patients expounding or causing the very injury that we're doing to the ecosystem to manifest these viruses in the first place. There's some sort of poetic justice that I might be just kind of re- overreading in that, and the science needs to be worked out, but there's something eloquent about that. Well, and I'm also thinking of the poetry of, I mean, tragic poetry, but just how we have been destroying and systematically burning the lungs of the planet, the Amazon rainforest, and now we have a virus that's destroying human lung tissue. I find that, again, kind of merciful. Like it's saying, look, if I can't breathe as Mother Earth, you're not going to breathe either. But I'm not going to hurt your lung in the same way. And if you do the right thing and plug back into nature, you could heal this very quickly. And so I think she's being very generous with this virus. I think that Mother Nature is, is doing something eloquent here. I think Mother Nature is always acting in our best interests. I don't think we would be here as a species if, if we weren't intended to be here by nature and by biology on the planet. Uh, we are a manifestation of very complex biology within the microbiome. We have a very, very simple genome where we only have 20,000 genes. That's, you know, a fruit fly has 13,000 genes. You are extremely simple from a genetic standpoint when it comes to the number of genes you have. The genes then program for you to make new proteins. The proteins are interestingly very diverse. You have over 280,000 proteins in your body. A very small number of those may be coming from human genes. We now know that RNA injected into our DNA from viruses millions of years ago or thousands of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, have allowed the adaptation of multicellular organisms in human life to emerge. In our genome right now is a retrovirus that codes for the very proteins that allow us to have stem cells. Stem cells would not work as stem cells if it wasn't for an RNA virus that upgraded our genome hundreds of millions of years ago. Hmm. So I find that very, very, very interesting that we are in our adaptive capacity and our extraordinary capacity for adaptation to our environments. We're the only species that has been able to inhabit every single ecologic niche on the planet, which is very unfortunate because what humans do is destroy the ecosystem they live in. So we've destroyed every single ecosystem on the planet. And so, you know, there's a, a bizarre negative effect of this, this capacity we have, but on the upside, if we realized that that was due to the intelligence of nature and that we are actually the culmination of an intelligent biologic process on the planet, and we started to act in, in this way, we would see human health recover nearly immediately. We can see it happen in soil with our nonprofit. So all of our money that we make out of our, our soil-based uh, nutritional supplements, we put into our nonprofit or other R&D uh, companies to find root cause solutions for the problems of the world right now. And so the, our nonprofit is there to help chemical farmers become regenerative soil managers. And so that shift, when we, they stop spraying chemicals, we can see 30 years of decimation of soils reverse in a single season, one you know, winter without spraying, one spring without spraying, and the biodiversity that can happen that very next summer is just berserk. And so it's so exciting that Mother Earth is so much more graceful and resilient than our behavior would would inflict upon her. So I think there's a call to action right now for the planet. We just proved 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that humanity can decrease our negative impact on nature instantaneously. That is the silver lining of this virus. I believe that this virus is giving us the opportunity to find out that mother nature is trying to upgrade us, not only genetically, but she's trying to upgrade us consciously. Our consciousness needs to respond to this event to show us that our economies are dependent on our ecology. And if we can make that leap and we can start realizing that we can't have a stock market if there is no ecologic stability on the planet, then we can put our monies into the correct prioritization, into the correct efforts, innovations, technologies that will put us in line with in our consumer product industries, in our energy industry, in our healthcare industry. All of these need to realign massively to the template that nature is screaming at us to pay attention to. And that template begins with biodiversity. If we allow for biodiversity to happen in the gut, in our soils, on our skin, in our sinuses, in our brain, in every single solid organ system, we now know the microbiome needs to be in each of these spaces, in our relationship to other humans, to our pets, to the animals we raise for food, to, to the very crops we grow for food or commodities or whatnot, to our sociopolitical situation. Again, if we make it biodiverse, if we create biodiverse mindset and we bring indigenous thought and leadership back into uh, the United Nations and we allow the, the indigenous leadership of this planet, 400 royal families and nation state leaders that are silenced in, in, the, in the national and international media, we need that voice to become very strong because they have many of the answers. They, they are ready and willing to update their methodologies to fit a modern world, but they have solutions at the political, sociopolitical levels that we need to pay attention to. They're very aware of the crises and problems that our current pharmaceutical and agricultural systems are inflicting on these developing countries. We need to listen there and prevent the damage that we've caused in the, in the developed worlds before we go extinct. So what can people do to help support their immune system, whether from this coronavirus or just in general, in terms of combating some of our widespread exposure to glyphosate and other toxins in the environment? It all comes down to you know, really great lifestyle decisions right now. So your microbiome of your gut, your skin, your sinuses, this whole extension that is your immune system that microbiome is a reflection or an element. Uh, it, it is the result of the ecology that you touch in a given day. And so the best way for you to strengthen your immune system is to be in as many diverse ecosystems as possible. National parks, national forests, hiking, beaches. Which they've the closed, unfortunately, oh, here in LA now anyway. <laughs> no, so it's happening globally. Our yeah. global response to this virus was the opposite of what would have made a resilient population putting people in their high rises and putting people in their, in their homes and locking them in there is the opposite of improving immune function. One of my favorite studies that came out a few years ago was looking at one of the, how to protect against flu. And one of the best predictors of protecting yourself against flu was seven to eight hugs a day. If you got more than seven or eight hugs a day, you had a 35% reduction in risk of getting the flu. It's very difficult to find you know, food or beverage in the United States not contaminated. The current single glass of, of California wine has 64 herbicides and pesticides that are detectable in that glass of wine. What about like an organic wine? Would, would that be the case with organic foods as well? 
Yeah, so far we haven't. So uh, Dry Farm Wines is, is a great distribution company that actually screens every wine they carry for herbicides and pesticides. And to date, they haven't found a single vineyard in the United States claiming anything that was actually clean. So the only wines they distribute are from, there's, I think, maybe one left in Argentina, but even South America is pretty contaminated. The vast majority of them are coming from small family vineyards in Italy or France. And that's kind of the last, you know, semblance of, of clean vines on earth. And those are diminishing quickly. So unfortunately, we're, it's a toxic, toxic environment. But our group is working with uh, Carlo Mondavi and uh, Napa. I, I love what he's doing. He started something called the Monarch Project, which has got the goal of cleaning Napa Valley up from its herbicide and pesticide toxicity over the next 10 years. And he has a, a beautiful uh, brand called Rain, R-A-E-N, I think is spelling. And uh, Rain is a new uh, wine that is on a 75 acre, very small micro vineyard uh, that he's doing there as the test plot of, of how to clean up the environment there. Uh, we have a, we have soil treatment products in, in play in our company in, in Virginia, as well as in the hemp industry we're, uh, with uh, Lineage Hemp. And so we're helping these growers understand how to radically improve the, the life cycle of their soils to, to detox everything from Roundup down to the heavy metals and the like. So uh, it, if you work with the microbes, they'll clean up the environment. And so if we stop killing the microbes with the Roundup, they start to come back and then they, they can quickly get, get the whole cycle of, of carbon metabolism as well as detoxification going throughout our soil systems. So how do you stay healthy? You need to be outside. Start gardening in the backyard. Start breathing real air again. Um, if you don't have a backyard, I don't have a backyard on my little uh, condo here. And so I, I've got, got to rely on micro gardening. So my wife and I just put in our little farmer's footprint, our, our farmer's fingerprint, we call it farmer's fingerprint garden. Um, and so we've grown kale and lettuces and tomatoes and uh, Hawaiian hot peppers on the, on the deck here. And so it takes a very small patch of sun to actually become quite productive. And, and just having a little touch to the soil and to the food coming out of that puts you back in touch with that whole microbiome. You don't need acres of land to become in touch with microbiome. So get your hands in the dirt daily, you know, poke around the tomato plants and, and check for, for health of the soil, make sure it's aerated, get, get that hydration right. And so you're, you should be monitoring, looking at that soil, touching that soil, breathing it, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of just biting mint right off the plant. And so don't pick it, but just bite it straight off the plant. It changes, again, your microbiome exposure to it without washing it, without picking it, all that. And so just go straight after the plant. And so these are ways that you can on your back porch or, you know, in a vertical garden on the wall of an apartment, whatever it is, uh, start to get small amount of plant life back into, into your daily routine to start to breathe real biome. And as soon as this government loosens up, and if this government doesn't loosen up soon, we're going to have to have a revolution. We need to get back outside. And so we got to get out. We got to push back out into nature as soon as possible because uh, our immune system depends on it. We are going to become sicker, not healthier if we remain secluded. So in whatever mechanism your government is allowing you, get outside right now on the way to the grocery store. Make sure you roll down the windows. Enjoy the fresh air. Uh, drive through neighborhoods that you've never been in uh, to get new microbiome, drive, drive through the city park, you know, whatever. Windows down, breathe the new air, breathe real air, breathe in that microbiome of the environment. If you take a trip up into to your local uh, national forest, things like that, uh, that aren't shut down right now and get outside, get into the woods and, and, and try to get in touch with nature. If your beaches are not shut down, then for goodness sakes, get out in the water there and, and touch nature.
Would you recommend anti-inflammatory foods like turmeric and ginger? And would, would that be something that could be effective just to support? Totally. I recommend that like for everybody all the time, any day, every day. And so the things that I recommend for healthy microbiome and immune support for the, from a nutritional standpoint is high fiber. And so as just a one rule, how much fiber are you getting in a day and how much variety? Your fiber is obviously coming from your vegetables and your fruits. And so if you can get to 10, 10 species of, of fruits and vegetables in a week, you're going to start winning the game in regard to, to fiber diversity. And the fiber has the ability to, to support that biodiversification of the gut. Huge fan of root vegetables. They need to be grown. Root vegetables are very high in Roundup content if they're grown conventionally. And so you need to go organic on these. But it's going to be things like your beets, your turnips, your sweet potatoes, your carrots, especially the purple carrots and, and the white carrots, the, the radishes, the red, the black, the white daikon radish. These are powerhouses of, of you know, diverse fibers and microbi- mi- micronutrient uh, you know, elemental variety to push microbiome diversification and a healthy immune system response. So eat close to the ground, eat as much variety as possible, at least 10 species of fruits and vegetables a week. And so if you're just eating broccoli every day, that doesn't count as a great diet. You need to seriously get, you know, all everything I just mentioned on the roots. And then you go above the ground and you're looking at, you know, all the different lettuces, you know, kale became a huge fan and I like kale. It's a good one. It got some interesting nutrients. But something like iron, which is very important at the elemental level for the microbiome uh, kind of balance and it can function as an antimicrobial, the iron load in kale is actually very, very low. And in most lettuces it is, but in romaine, it's phenomenal. So romaine is one of the highest bioavailabilities of iron in the entire diet. And Mm -hmm. so romaine lettuce, you know, the, the, the butter lettuces, the dark red lettuces, and then you can get into things like your kale and cruciferous vegetables where your Brussels sprouts, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, those sorts of things. Um, and so you want to diversify, diversify, diversify over the course of the week. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, of kind of the heirloom fruits out there. So things like, you know, mango and uh, things that have not been hybridized, uh, the, the classic hybridized crops out there are things like watermelons that are sold at U.S. grocery stores. If you go abroad and buy watermelon, it's great. It's totally different than any U.S. watermelon, totally genetically modified through hybridization in the U.S. And then uh, apples are another classic version of that. The heirloom apples have very low glycemic index compared to that classic Fuji you know, apple in the United States. These big red sweet apples have been bred into low fiber content. As you decrease the fiber content, the glycemic index goes up and that fructose in the apple suddenly becomes, you know, very, very difficult from an endocrine standpoint for your, for your, uh, your health. And so eat those heirloom things. Kiwis are a good example of a good one. So, uh, kiwis, mangoes, uh, original melons, you know, things like, uh, the what is often called the Santa Claus melon in, in the United States. Uh, uh, but honeydew melons would be reasonable cantaloupe. Uh, those kinds of fruits out there. So um, go after variety, go after variety and get outside and grow as much of that as possible over the course of this next spring and summer coming on here. So I hope that our consciousness is rising and that when the restrictions are lifted, we are going to be all up in each other's stuff and giving each other hugs and kisses and just getting all French on each other because we need to be affectionate. We need to be grabbing each other and saying, I missed you. I love you. Grabbing each other's faces and kissing each other on the cheeks Let's get this re-engagement of humanity to be affectionate, to be loving, 
to be conscious of our connection, the necessity for our connection to one another, the necessity for our connection to the nature around us, the connection back to a food system that is built within nature, not within chemical industries. We need, you know, not any more Frankenburgers. We need real food. And that, that gets me excited because I think that we could move from this extreme crisis of food system vulnerability that we're currently in to food security over the next five years as we reorient our priorities from cheap, cheap, cheap is better to quality is better and home is better and closer to home is better. And so as we start growing our gardens again, at the end of World War II, we were growing 40% of our food in our backyard victory gardens. We, we grow less than a tenth of 1% of our food in our backyards now. And so we stop participating in it. My excitement is everybody's been out of seeds. Everybody's out of potting soil right now. Like there has been a run on gardening right now. And I couldn't be more excited that that was the public's response to that. That is a rise in consciousness. That didn't happen with SARS, MERS, these other things. I think there's a huge silver lining of human behavior through this global event. So if you haven't participated in the, in the gardening revolution in the last couple of weeks, make sure you get out there as soon as things are lifted or get out there today and start the process. Dig a hole, put a plant in it. If it dies next week, no problem. Dig three more holes, plant more, <laughs> three more plants. This is a process. You got to learn. You're not going to be good at this overnight. Do not be discouraged by you know, your ineffectiveness the first time out of the box here. Start sprouting some seeds in your in your kitchen right now. We've got uh, uh, broccoli seeds and we've got radish seeds going right now. And those make incredible microgreens that are so dense. And it takes five days and you've got an incredible salad growing on your own countertop. So, so please get engaged. It doesn't take a garden plot to start growing your own food uh, and, and start you know, becoming self-sufficient on some level again in regard to your food system. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Zach. So glad to be with all of you. I'm excited for the future of food. Thanks for listening, everyone. Visit us online at futurefood.fm. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and put the power to save the planet on your plate and on your playlist. I'm Ivy Juiva. Future of Food is produced by Lee Schneider. Music by Epidemic Sound. We're part of the Future X Podcast Network.